Okay, recording now. So this morning we're going to be covering Jesus' letter to the church at Smyrna. Uh, First, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day you've blessed us with and a morning to come together and be edified by your word and for good fellowship and above all, Lord, to worship you. I pray that you will work through these words, Lord, and convict our minds and hearts that we would draw nearer to you and a greater understanding of what you would have us know according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> it's funny, I never have problems with asthma until I stand in front of people. It's, it's kind of weird. Okay, so we're going to be covering the letter at church, to the church at Smyrna. To begin, we're going to read the passage, uh, Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tempted, and for ten days you will have tribulation." Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Some very powerful words we find there in the second chapter of Revelations. Now, my original goal was to address... So so far, we've talked about the church at Ephesus, a port city. Now we're on to the church at Smyrna. My goal was to also cover the church at Pergamum, but there's something very distinctive about the church at Smyrna that we're going to cover, and I may not actually go, actually I'm quite sure that I will not go into the church at Pergamum today. To premise this entire discourse, I want to have us consider a few things. When we talk about the book of Revelations, we often... We think of the book of Revelations in regards to eschatology, the study of the end times, the things that are going to happen. But the question I want you guys to think about are what are the correlations to you today? What are they personally? Does Do things in this letter address you personally? Does it address the local church here at Three Rivers? Does it address the universal church worldwide in modern times? Okay. To Again, premise this entire discourse, we're going to go over Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Christ speaking here, or Christ being spoken of Christ, but he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. These two verses coupled together create essentially a doctrine of what I would like to call immediate application. Whenever we read, we read God's word, there is always an instant and immediate application to our lives. The question is, how does all of this apply to you and what does it mean for you in regards to the way you live your life? The church at the city of, or the character of the city of Smyrna is something that we're going to address. Now we see here, as in the previous chapter in regards to the church at Ephesus, the angel, it says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Now we know that the word angel simply means messenger. It doesn't necessarily, it could be an actual angel, but we know in the context and the translation of the word means messenger. Now Smyrna was one of the oldest cities in the world. It was said to be the birthplace of the Greek poet Homer that wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. The Iliad was in regards to the city of Troy and the Battle of Agamemnon. 
and Achilles. The city of Troy was only a little further north, kind of an interesting factor, which was also a port city. <coughs> this was a large, beautiful, and proud city. It was considered the center of learning and culture. Now, I kind of like to correlate it <laughs> like to the West Coast. It's almost like San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, that kind of thing. Not that it is quite literally, but I like to try to, again, apply it to modern day times and modern day places. Uh, Smyrna was a great trade, uh, trade city. It stood at the end of the road, which served the valley of the river Hermas. So there was also a river that flowed into it. And I should have printed out the map too, but the, the river kind of went all through of what is modern day Turkey. It still does. The, the, the region was called Anatolia, which now is known as modern day Turkey. Okay. Uh, I'm learning to check our things as I write them so I know where I can come back to here. So bear with me. I'm, I'm trying to employ a new method. Uh, Smyrna, we also know from history that it was deeply committed to idolatry and the worship of the Roman emperor. One famous street in Smyrna called the Golden Street. Uh, it was a street that you could walk down and it was magnificent and large temples to the left and right everywhere. They, they were dedicated to uh, Apollo, Cybele. Aphrodite, Asclepios, the Temple of Zeus, were all on this street. But what we see in, the, in Smyrna at that time, now remember the book of Revelation was written approximately A.D. 95, give or take. Now it, it is belie or it's believed that it could have possibly been written sooner, around A.D. 65, but the general consensus seems to be that it was written a little bit later, during the time of the Emperor Domitian. Okay. <coughs> What you see happening in the culture, when Rome conquered a civilization, they didn't just conquer the region, they also conquered the ideology and the theology of the people. As you may know from history that you learn in school is whenever a Roman, uh, Romans conquered a place like the Greeks, they would take over their gods and essentially translate them into their own culture. And you see the names of the Greek gods changed into the name of the Roman gods. But during this time, what we see happening is that the worship of the gods is starting to fade because the emperor is starting to shift things to worship to himself. And we'll see how that translates to the church there in Ephesus. Um, in 196 BC, Smyrna built that. Now, this was 100 years later. Smyrna built the first temple to the day of Rome, the god of Rome, or the goddess of Rome, rather, the spiritual symbol of the Roman Empire. Once the spirit of Rome was worshipped, it wasn't much of a step to worship the dead emperors of Rome. So, again, what we see is it's starting to shift the temples. It, it became like a secondhand thing. So now the worship of the era, the, the religion is starting to be that, that Caesar is literally God. And this is going to be important when it comes to understanding this letter. Um, and, and there was actually a competition in the Roman Empire to win the privilege to build a temple in regards to the worship of Caesar of the time. And during this time in AD 23, during the life of Christ, Smyrna won the privilege over 11 other cities competing to build the first temple to worship the Emperor Tiberius Caesar. Okay, I, had, I brought an actual artifact. This coin is a denarius that was circulated during the time of Christ in that area. Okay, now this coin uh, was under Caesar Augustus, which was right before Christ, but it was used during the reign of Caesar Tiberius. So it would just be like an updated nickel or something like that. Kind of... I'll pass it around if you'd like. 
<coughs> the Roman Emperor Domitian was the first to demand worship under the title Lord. This is a significant thing to re uh, realize in regards to the letter um, to the, the church at Smyrna here. According to ancient church history, it was under the reign of Emperor Domitian that John was banished to the island of Patmos, which we see right over here, okay, just off the coast. Oops, I keep doing that. I've got my notes too close together here. Emperor worship had begun as a spontaneous demonstration of the gratitude to Rome, but towards the end of the first century in the days of Domitian, the final step was taken and Caesar worship became compulsory. You didn't have a choice. Now, once a year, a Roman citizen would be required to announce their allegiance to Caesar as Lord. And here's how it was done. There was a pedestal placed usually inside a temple. And what I've read, it was either, it was usually, it, usually it was the temple that was built for Caesar. And what you would do is you would go in and you would grab some incense out of a bowl and you would put it in this box that was burning and you would say, O Caesarius in Akirios, Caesar is Lord. Why is that significant? Because in Smyrna, all the Christians had to do was burn that pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord, receive a literal certificate, and then go away and worship any way that they wanted. Now think about what's happening here. It's not that they couldn't worship Christ. It's that they had to acknowledge that Caesar was Lord. And then you can go do whatever you want. They would give no man the name of the, the Christians at Smyrna. Now remember, they're being persecuted here. And Christ talks about this. He says, I know what you're going through. I know you're about to be thrown in jail. Don't give up. All they had to do was say, Caesar is Lord. Okay, Sirios in the Kyrios. They didn't say that. All they would do... And remember, this temple was a public square. It was like the town square. There'd be all sorts of public officials, politicians, and people around. And they would see you drop that incense in there, and you would be publicly known as someone that dedicated yourself to the worship of Caesar. What Christians would do is they would simply go in there and say, Oh, Jesus in the Kyrios, and not drop the incense in there. And that would ostracize them. That would cause them to lose jobs. That would cause them to lose contracts, social standing, all these important things that you needed in order to, to exist in Smyrna. Now, Jesus describes himself to the church at Smyrna. He does it in a very interesting way. He says, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. The first and the last. Jesus chose this title from his initial appearance to John, and we see that in Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses 11 and 17. And he does this to speak of his eternal character. So he's establishing in the letter, he's, he's saying, I am the first and the last. First and the last are titles that belong only to God. And we see that in Isaiah chapter 41, 44 and 48. Then he says, who was dead and came to life? Jesus chose this title from his initial appearance to John in Revelation, verse, uh, the first chapter, to remind the Christians that they served the risen Lord, victorious over death, and that death could not hold Jesus. That's how he premises this letter. He says, you are worshiping the risen Savior. I am the only one that has conquered death. Now, the association with death and victory of resurrection is throughout this letter, okay? Okay. The name Smyrna comes from the word mir, 
a sweet smelling perfume used in embalming. Now here's what Jesus knows about the Christians in Smyrna. I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. Let me say that again. I know your works, your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. I'm going to address what he's actually talking about there. Now, when he says, I know your works, Jesus knew the works of the church in Ephesus. We see in, in chapter 2, verse 2. In Smyrna, Jesus also knew their works, tribulation, and poverty. He knows these hardships both in the sense that he saw what happened to them and in the sense he knew their hardships by personal experience. Now, poverty. According to history, Smyrna was a prosperous city. It would be like a, a Portland or a, a Seattle, rather, or a San Francisco. It was, it was, there was great wealth to be had. But the poverty here spoken of is not just that they were poor. They were abjectly poor. It was abject poverty. Christians in Smyrna knew poverty because they were robbed and fired from jobs and, and the persecution, because of the persecution for the gospel. Early Christians joyfully accepted the plundering of their own goods, knowing that they would have to endure, or knowing that they would endure uh, for the cause of Christ. And we see that it talked about in Hebrews 10, verse 34. This kind of economic persecution was one important reason why Christians were poor in Smyrna. Even today, not so much in America, it, it, it does happen in some forms, but this is a common form of persecution against Christians. So, again, in regards to the local church, universal church, how does this apply in modern-day times? He says, I know the blasphemy. Jesus knew the abuse these Christians endured and at the hands of religious men, those who say they were Jews and were not. Now, remember, in that time, to be a true Jew was either to hold to the Old Testament law, to be remember, or to remember to be bound by the law, or to be bound by the New Covenant. <clears throat> the greatest proselytizing happened within the Jewish community, too. Historically, we were told there was a large and hostile community of Jews in Smyrna, but this tells us that the true Jew is the one who trusts God and believes in Jesus Christ, according to Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. Now, others may be Jews. Now, listen to this. Others may be Jews ethnically, which still has its place before God, according to Scripture, depending upon the doctrine that you believe, but they are not Jews spiritually before God. Christian by heritage, but not Christian by spiritual rebirth. Okay? False converts were not really members of the church, and that's what Christ is pointing out here. He's not just persecuting Jews because they were Jews. He's talking about false converts. They were of the synagogue of Satan. That's a pretty powerful statement. Can you imagine saying that statement in modern-day Christianity to anyone Jewish? That's probably something you wouldn't say. The word synagogue of Satan, synagogue and church are virtually synonymous because it means a congregation. It means an assembly. It doesn't necessarily mean a building. Okay. Now, I know when Christ says, I know, in the midst of this kind of affliction, it is easy to think that God has forgotten about these people. But he knows. He knows by experience what Jesus thinks about. Now, excuse me. Now we're going to go on to point number four is what Jesus thinks about the church at Smyrna. You are rich. Now think about that. Rich. Every outward circumstance said, in the, uh, said that the Christians in Smyrna were poor. 
destitute, without possession. But Jesus saw through the circumstances to see that they were really rich. Rich, what, oh, excuse me, and poverty. You are rich. The contrast between material poverty and spiritual riches of the Christians in Smyrna reminds us that there is nothing inherently spiritual in being rich. Equally, there is nothing inherently spiritual in being poor in regards to material possession. Material riches are an, often an obstacle into the kingdom of God, an obstacle that some do not overcome. When we go to Mark chapter 10, verses 23 to 25, we, we see it is easier for a rich man to enter into the, or it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of, go through the eye of a needle, excuse me, I should have just read it, than a rich man to enter the gates of heaven. Have you ever, do you know what an, the eye of the needle is? Have you ever been told this? The eye of the needle was a small gate on the side of a castle wall or a city wall where a camel had to kneel down and it was very difficult for that camel to go through that gate. So it's not saying a literal needle that a camel can't go through, it's that it, the camel had to struggle and humble himself to go through. Often material riches are acquired and maintained at the expense of true spiritual riches. Now, there's a story that I found when I was doing some research. It talks about the glory days of the Renaissance of, of the papacy. And the, the story goes, there was a man walking with the Pope in the Vatican City and he marveled at the splendors and the riches of the Vatican. And the Pope told him, we no longer have to say what Peter told the lame man, silver and gold have I none. But his companion replied, but neither can you say, rise up and walk. Rich, the church at Smyrna has also, was also rich in leadership. This absolutely blew my mind because I'm a big fan of church history. If you've ever heard of the boxes, uh, the boxes, the Fox's Book of Martyrs, those who don't understand church history are doomed to repeat it. <laughs> I don't know if that actually applies, but um, the Fox's Book of Martyrs talks about all of the the, the well-known uh, and martyrs throughout church history. This here is a page of Fox's Book of Martyrs. This was actually printed in 1570. It's one of my prized possessions. This talks about a martyr uh, in, in the Church of England that was burned with a blind man. And he says, and th this, this uh, one guy is lame and one guy is blind. And I'm going to read this real quick because it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, his name was Hugh Lorick. And at their death, Lorick assured his blind companion, companion to be of good comfort, my brother. He will heal us both wholly, thee of thy blindness and me of thy lameness. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Church history. Oh, sorry, skipped it. Last thing here. What blew me away is I never knew that Polycarp, you've probably heard that name, he was an actual disciple of the Apostle John. I never knew that. I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did, but I didn't. <laughs> I was, I don't know why, it just, I was like, oh my gosh, that is so cool. The church in Smyrna was also rich in leadership. One of the pastors of that church was named Polycarp. He was actually a pastor. He was one of the Apostle John's disciples and served at Smyrna until A.D. 155 when he died heroically as a martyr. Point number five, what Jesus wants the Christians in Smyrna to do. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Now, indeed, we know the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tempted. Interesting 
delegation of power, for lack of, better, of a better word, um, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Do not fear. The translation actually says, stop being afraid in our modern day tongue. So I don't go to you and say, don't, do not fear, brother. I say, stop being afraid. That's what Christ is saying here. Stop being afraid. Very stern words from a loving father. The Christians in Smyrna suffered under persecution and they were afraid. Domitian, the emperor of that time in that era, or for, over, that, over the church in that region, he was the first. Now, if you read church history, Domitian was one of them that started to actively persecute Christians and burn them at the stake. There was a Colosseum, some of it still exists today, in the city of Smyrna, where they actually celebrated the persecution. And when I say persecution, I'm not saying, you guys are jerks! I'm talking about picking up stones and stoning them to death, burning them at the cross, feeding them to lions. There's some stories here. I'll share a couple of them, if time permits. Do not fear. Stop being afraid. The devil's about to throw some of them in prison. Now here, Jesus described the nature of the persecution that would come against the Christians in Smyrna. Apparently, they would be in prison and for a specific period of time because he says, you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now, according to Jesus, the persecution about to come against the Christians of Smyrna was from the devil. That's interesting that he says it like that. At the same time, actually, it's not super interesting because if you think about the story of Job, who was in control of the devil? Okay, he's the prince of this world, yet subject to God's will. Being thrown into prison was severe persecution. It's not like the Holiday Inn prisons that we have in America today. There's no gym. There's no buffet. There's no Facebook time. Okay, when you went to prison in ancient Rome, you suffered. You were lucky if you had a bed that wasn't stone. Okay. Being thrown into prison was severe persecution. In that day, prison was never used to rehabilitate. It was used to punish. Normally, you were thrown into prison as you awaited your execution. For a man to become a Christian anywhere in this region was to stand up and say, I oppose Caesar. Imagine walking onto, I don't know, Fort Hood and declaring yourself the enemy of every soldier in there. That's essentially what it meant to become a Christian in that time in that region. This tribulation does not translate. Okay, again, how does this translate to us? This tribulation does not translate uh, to the common trials that you and I face here in Grove, Oklahoma. Some Christians think they're, being, uh, they're bearing their cross every time they have a headache. Okay, but that's not what Christ is talking about here, and that's not what the letter is referring to. The, tribu the tribulation mentioned here is the trouble they would have not had if they had not been Christians. You will have tribulation 10 days. Now, commentators on the book of Revelation, there's, there's I don't even know how many, there's, there's quite a bit. The bottom line is some people think tribulation could have, the 10-day tribulation could have been 10 years. It could have been specifically referring to 10 days exactly, or it could have just been referring to a specific amount of time. The bottom line is it was a set amount of time by Christ. That you may be tempted. If this attack is to come from the devil, then why couldn't these Christians in Smyrna just rebuke Satan? We know that the apostles had that power. Why couldn't they do that? The answer is glaring us in the face because God had a purpose in their suffering. So he allowed it. 
God uses suffering of all sorts to purify us. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. To make us like Christ. Romans 8, verses 17. And to make us truly witnesses of him. In all ages, the blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church. It's a verse I got out of that book, or a quote I got out of that book. The saints at Smyrna had not been given a pep talk on how to win friends and influence people. Okay, they didn't have a book called Your Best Life Now or How I Became the Mayor Through Faith for Over the City of Smyrna. You don't see that kind of stuff here. Okay, to call yourself a Christian was to call yourself an enemy of that civilization. Okay, it would be akin to a Christian going to, I don't know, an ISIS-dominated region. Okay, pretty close. Not quite as severe because in an ISIS-dominated region, you're, you're, you're going to survive all of five minutes. The, the goal of the Roman Empire was to convert. It was a little bit different than Islam. But the bottom line is if you didn't convert, convert and if you didn't declare your allegiance to Caesar, you were going to die for it sooner or later. <clears throat> Through their suffering, God displayed the true riches of the church in Smyrna to everyone, including themselves, even though he knew they were rich already. And the Christians at Smyrna would be tested, but they passed the test. This church, this is why I'm, I'm spending more time on this church and not going right into the other one, because of all the seven churches, this is the only church that Jesus doesn't have anything bad to say about them. Now think about this, and we'll cover the other churches later if we have time um, in the upcoming weeks. But in Ephesus, he's like, you've left your first love. You left your first love. And these other churches, you know, you've become saturated with, with greed and all these things and immorality. But the church at Smyrna, he's like, you guys are doing great. Just hang in there. So what was the uncommon denominator? What was the uncommon denominator? It was suffering. It was persecution. It was trials. It was tribulation. Very anti, or what am I trying to say, counterintuitive to what we think Christianity should be. That you may be tested. God is interested in testing us. We may not have the same opportunity to suffer for Jesus at the, as the Christians in Smyrna did, but we can have their same heart. We may never be in a place to die a martyr's death. That's just kind of the reality for us here in America so far, maybe not forever. But we can live a martyr's life. That's the point here. Sadly, many, many Christians in the modern-day church, I would dare to say even here in Grove, possibly even here in this congregation, we avoid persecution of any kind by conforming so much to the world that it no longer makes us distinctively Christian. I'm often guilty of this myself, so this is not an indictment on us. This is something to think about, okay? This wasn't the case for the Christians in Smyrna. They were tested, and they passed the test. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. What Jesus said to this church is important, okay? He's promising them a crown. Now, point number six, general exhortation to all who will hear. Let me say that again. A general exhortation to all whom will hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the scripture says to the churches. Let me say it again. He who has an ear, let him hear. That's a powerful statement. It's a broad statement coming from the sovereign God. He who has an ear, let him hear. Though the Spirit has something to say through, uh, to us through every one of the churches, this letter to the Christians in Smyrna may apply 
at least of all to the modern Western church here in America. To this point, we simply don't face the kind of persecution that Christians in Smyrna experience. Polycarp was a remarkable example of both the persecution and the courage of the early Christians. I'll go into history just a little bit. The year after Polycarp returned from Rome, a great persecution came upon the Christians of Smyrna. The emperor had had enough. His congregation urged him, Polycarp's congregation urged him to leave the city until the threat blew over. So believing that God wanted him to be around for a few more years, Polycarp left the city and hid out on a farm belonging to some Christian friends. On the, one day on the farm, as he prayed, a very cool story, and it's, again, it's found in here. There's so many interesting stories of Christians that suffered persecution here. One of my favorites is actually John Hess. Have you ever heard the phrase, the goose is cooked, your goose is cooked? That's actually where it comes from. His nickname was the goose. It's really, it's really kind of it's interesting story. That's where we get that phrase from. Most people don't know that. I didn't know that. Um, Sorry, he was on a farm. He was praying in his room, and he had this vision of a pillow engulfed in flames. He believed that he knew that God was saying to him and calmly told his companions, I see that I must be burnt at the stake. Meanwhile, the chief of police issued a warrant for his arrest. They seized one of Polycarp's servants and tortured him until he told them where his, this, his master was. Towards the evening, the police chief and the band of soldiers came to the old farmhouse. When the soldiers found him, they were embarrassed to see that they had come to arrest such a fragile old man. They reluctantly put him on a donkey and walked him back to the city of Smyrna. On the way to the city, the police chief and the other government officials tried to persuade Polycarp to offer a pinch of incense. That's all he had to do to Caesar and simply say, Caesar is Lord. That's all he had to do, and it would be off the hook. They pleaded with him to do it and to escape the, the, what was going to happen to him, but Polycarp at first was silent, but then he calmly gave the firm answer, no. The police chief was now angry. Annoyed with the old man, he pushed him off his carriage and onto the ground. Polycarp, bruised but resolute, got up and walked the rest of the way to the arena. This is the arena believed to be where Polycarp was actually burned alive at the stake. Now, he, so they take him to the arena. There's a mob waiting for him, and it wasn't just him that was, was killed at this time. There was actually a group of Christians that were to be killed. Uh, one Christian named Quintus boldly the, proclaimed, proclaimed himself a follower of Jesus and said he was willing to be martyred, but when he saw the vicious animals in the arena, he lost courage and agreed to burn the pinch of incense to Caesar as Lord. That's tragic. Scary and tragic. Another young man named Germanicus didn't back down. He marched out and faced the lions and died an agonizing death for his Lord Jesus. We don't often talk about this stuff. We definitely don't teach it in Sunday school for kids. Why? That's kind of a hard question to answer, to be perfectly honest. Ten other Christians gave their, gave their lives that day, but the mob was unsatisfied. They cry out, away with the atheists who do not worship our gods. Interesting phrase. To them, Christians were the atheists because they did not recognize the traditional gods of Rome and Greece. Finally, the crowd started chanting, bring out Polycarp. Can you imagine being in that stadium? When Polycarp was brought out, they, this is, I got to read this to you. When he was brought out, uh, his tired body into the arena, he and the other Christians heard a voice from heaven. It said, be strong, Polycarp, play the man. Be strong, Polycarp, play the man. As he stood before the proconsul, they tried one more time to get him to renounce Jesus in the public arena. 
The proconsul told Polycarp to agree with the crown and shout out, away with the atheists. Polycarp looked sternly at the mob, waved his hands toward them, and said, away with those atheists. The proconsul persisted, <clears throat> take the oath and revile Christ and I'll set you free. The most famous line he ever said, Polycarp answered, for 86 years I've served Jesus. How dare I revile my king? The proconsul finally gave up, announced to the crowd the time of uh, announced to the crowd the time of the accused. Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. Let the lions loose, the crowd uh, screamed, but the animals had already been put away, so the crowd demanded that Polycarp be burnt. The older man remembered the dream about burning the burning pillow, took courage in God, and he said to his executioners, "It is well with my soul. I fear not the fire that burns for a season." And after a while is quenched. Why do you delay? Come do your will. They arranged a pile of wood and set up a pole in the middle. I believe I have kind of a picture. This is an ancient representation I could pass around here. Kind of neat. I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I may receive the portion and the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ. After he prayed and gave thanks to God, they set the wood ablaze. Very interesting. A great wall of flame shot up around the sky, but it never touched him. It is, it's as though God set a hedge of protection between him and the fire. And seeing that it, the fire would not burn, the executioner, in a furious rage, stabbed the old man with a long spear. Immediately, streams of blood gushed from his body and seemed to extinguish the fire. How interesting. When this happened, witnesses say they saw a dove fly up from the smoke into heaven. <clears throat> At that very same moment, a church leader in Rome named Arrhenius said he heard God say to him, Polycarp is dead. God call his servants home. That was one of the stories I found there in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Again, it's a book I highly recommend. Nevertheless, the day of martyrs is definitely not past. All over the world, just a couple more minutes, Christians face persecution, especially in Asia, Eastern Europe, and in, especially in the Muslim world in the modern day times. Some people estimate that more Christians have suffered and died for their faith in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. Now think about that. We're pretty comfortable and safe here in this nation up to this point, but in other parts of the world, it's a real serious problem. Okay. The promise of reward. I'm going to skip down to the last part. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. He who overcomes. This is a promise for overcomers. This promise for, is for those who overcome the threat of persecution and the presence of persecution. We might say that we overcome by our close association with Jesus, who is the ultimate overcomer. As Jesus said in the world, you will have tribulation. It's a promise. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Shall not, last part, shall not be hurt by the second death. Those who overcome in Jesus will never be hurt by the second death. The second death referred to is hell itself. The lake of fire spoken of later in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. Though Satan threaten and attack their life, Jesus promises his overcomers that death is conquered for him, for them, excuse me. The second death... Um, all men, excuse me, all men die but are not killed with death. Oh, it is a woeful thing to be killed with death. Charles Spurgeon. Thank you. Say that again, brother. Sorry. 